Okay, while everybody's um, coming in, wandering in, getting settled, good to see everybody this evening. Next Tuesday night is going to be Christmas Eve. The next Tuesday night is going to be New Year's Eve. On Christmas Eve, we're going to change our schedule slightly and have a 6.30 uh, communion, Christmas communion service. And the way that's going to go is we're going to sing some of our favorite Christmas hymns, and then we're going to have a um, brief message, probably around 20 minutes to 30 minutes, no more, and then have communion. So it's going to be a time when we can bring, if you have family members in from out of town, I was talking to somebody today, and they said, well, I've got so-and-so here and -and so-and-so here. Well, bring them, because they're all believers. Oh, that's a good idea. You know, we're going to meet at 6.30 so that you can go home and eat afterwards at 7.30 and open presents or whatever you do on Christmas Eve. And um, But it gives you an opportunity to put the focal point on the birth of our Savior. So that is the purpose for next year's Christmas, I mean, the next week's Christmas Eve service. New Year's Eve, well, we're just going to have a regular service, 7.30, let everybody go home at 8.30 and go to whatever parties you want to go to, and hopefully you'll be home safe asleep before <clears throat> all the drunks are out on the road. Uh, outside of that, I don't know of any other uh, significant things coming up. I will be in Kiev uh, the last part of January, and Tommy Ice will be covering the pulpit for uh, both Sundays and the time in between, so you can look forward to that. Uh, we'll have a couple of sessions with some good DVDs. In fact, there's one that I'm going to have the first night I'm gone that that y'all really need to be here for. It is great. It was Michael Rydelnik, uh, who's the head of the Jewish Studies Department, and I've gotten to know more and more the last couple of years. Um uh, his he just has a tremendous testimony, and he gave a gr- had a great paper at the conference. Uh, the Munsons were there. You can ask them. You were there, weren't you, Dick? The last morning, and uh, it was great. And and Tom he he didn't have a full hour presentation hour and a half presentation, so Tommy asked him to give his testimony, which is just tremendous. And um, and so you want to be here for that. So uh, that's what's coming up. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness." Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can make sure you're ready to study the word in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, we're just so thankful that we can be here this evening to fellowship together around the teaching of your word, that we might be strengthened, encouraged by what we study, that you might be remind, might remind us through these events that we study of your faithfulness, the fact that in your sovereignty and your providence you watch over us, guide us, direct us, and that even though we often face adversity, face difficulties, and even though we know we're doing your will, things don't go quite the way we think they ought. Nevertheless, we know you're in control. Help us to understand those things and that we might be encouraged from your word. Father, we continue to pray for those who are ill in the congregation, some who are facing life-threatening diseases. We continue to pray for them and that you would strengthen them, give their doctors wisdom, their families strength and courage and and care and comfort for those who are ill. And, Father, we just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 24, as far as I can tell. I'm not, wasn't quite sure where I ended last time. I want to review a little bit. There's a certain amount of repetition as we come to the end of Acts. Acts is, uh, uh, during this period of two years where the Apostle Paul has come to Jerusalem, his arrest in, in, um, in Jerusalem, the, the, the crowd that uh, just almost riots because of his presence, uh, stirred up by the antagonism and the hostility of the religious zealots uh, among the Jews that have come and followed him and hounded his uh, footsteps from Ephesus and accused him of bringing a Gentile uh, inside the uh, holy holy areas of the temple and which is all uh, all false and they've brought him into the uh, brought these charges against him and they just about killed him physically beating him in the temple precincts and then as he was rescued by the Kiliarch the commander of the Roman troops stationed there at the uh, Antonio for, for, fortress uh, as they went up the steps onto the walls of the temple in that um, uh, northwest corner where the Antonio Fortress was, he had the Kiliarch stop so that he could turn around and address the crowd. That's the first defense that we see. And we see this term either as the noun apologia or we see the verb apologeomai, which means to give a rational defense. So it's a great example through here of the different ways in which a believer can give a defense, which simply means to present a logical, rational, scriptural case for why he believes what he believes. And if you go to that passage in Second Peter or First Peter three fifteen, where <clears throat> Paul says that we're to all—I mean, Peter says where we're to always be ready to give an answer. Uh, apologeo, uh, uh, give an answer uh, for the hope that is in us. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. He always focuses the message on the hope of the resurrection and taking whatever's going on, taking it back to the to the cross. And that is uh, an example to us, one of many, of how a defense can be mounted which is simply uh, stating why we believe what we believe and being able to do that. His first defense was in front of the mob. We studied that in Acts 22, 1 through 21. And as the, as the mob was there at the foot of the wall where he stood, he uh, uh, gave a defense of his position to them. But then when he got down to the point where 
as he's addressing the mob where he uh, states that God had commissioned him to take the gospel to the Gentiles, they just went berserk. They just got all emotional and just uh, increased their riot and and just just started ripping their own clothes off and throwing dust in the air and just going into all sorts of dramatics and histrionics in order to express their anger and hostility and frustration towards the Apostle Paul. The Kiliarch, the Roman commander, did not really understand these religious issues and what motivated it. So the next day, uh, like many well-meaning people, he thought, well, we can all think this thing through rationally and objectively and come to uh, an understanding here and not realizing how hostile negative volition is, as Paul says in Romans 1, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And so he brought Paul into the Sanhedrin and gave Paul an opportunity to speak, and that's Paul's second defense that we studied in Acts 23, 1 through 10. And we saw how slick the Apostle Paul was. He knows everybody that's there. He knows the theological hot buttons to push. He understands the the issues and antagonisms between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he just threw the whole issue of resurrection right out there like a hot potato, like a big landmine, uh, right in between the two. And they started fighting with each other over the issue of uh, the, the <coughs> veracity of physical bodily resurrection of the dead, and it ended up just creating a huge melee there, and they never did accomplish anything. And once again, the Kiliarch had to rescue Paul and take him back to the barracks, and then they discovered a plot was hatched against the Apostle Paul. And there were 40 men who swore they wouldn't eat, they would go on a fast until the Apostle Paul was dead. And word of that got to Paul through his nephew, and after he was, his nephew came and told him what was going on, he sent him to the Kiliarch, who showed his uh, integrity, his military discipline, and he organized a huge number of uh, soldiers, a couple of centur- uh, centuries, as well as uh, foot soldiers, a couple hundred foot soldiers, and um, a troop of cavalry to go with the Apostle Paul, made sure the Apostle was seated on a horse, which would give him greater flexibility if there was an attack and he could get away. And they took him to Caesarea. And as they they took him to Caesarea, and there he came uh, before Felix, which is about where we stopped last time in terms of Paul's defense before Felix, which is uh, related in uh, by Luke in Acts 24.10 through 21. Now, <clears throat> I think it's important, as I said last time, to look at this whole block uh, of events that, that Luke obviously has given a lot of detail here. It's a lot of narrative. Somebody said last week, well, I haven't seen you cover that much scripture in a while. I think there were a couple of times in Genesis and a couple of times in... Um, in Kings, when we covered some some large territory, simply because when you get into passages that are pure narrative, telling the story, telling the events, there's not as much doctrine there. There's not you're not <clears throat> trying to uh, uh, analyze and and go into detail about a letter, an epistle, or a speech or a lesson like the Sermon on the Mount, which we're getting ready to start in in Matthew. These things take a little more time than just a straight uh, narrative or straight story. But the reason that we run into this and we have to think about this is why does the Holy Spirit want to think about this and what is he illustrating? And I pointed this out some last time 
I want to go back to these passages. <clears throat> In Acts 9.15 and Acts 23.11, God made specific promises to Paul. Specific promises. God's made general promises to us. We don't have specific revelation about things that are happening in our lives like this, but we have more general promises and principles that we can trust the Lord for. But here are two principles, I mean two promises that God, God made to the Apostle Paul. The first is the top verse, Acts 9.15, which took place right after Paul's conversion. And in that verse, the Lord said to him, that's the Apostle Paul, oh, excuse me, that's um, Ananias who was going to heal Paul, and was and the Lord was sending him to heal Paul of his blindness. And um, the Lord said to Ananias, Go for he, that is the Apostle Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name to three groups, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And, of course, I pointed out there that even though the Apostle Paul is the primary um, primary apostle to the Gentiles, notice that the Lord Jesus Christ also commissioned him to take the gospel to the children of Israel. And he under, that's where he understood the foundational principle to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I think some dispensational pastors and teachers have so emphasized Paul's mission to the Gentiles and Peter's mission to the Jews that they overstated their case and uh, and even some uh, led some to certain unwarranted conclusions about why the Apostle Paul uh, made a vow that ended back in the end of the second missionary journey or in the middle of the second missionary journey at Centuria, his vow to go to Jerusalem, things of that nature, concluding that that was wrong. If you miss little passages like this, you get into trouble. But the first two categories, he's commissioned to take the gospel to Gentiles and to kings. Now, as we went through his first, second, and third missionary journey, I can't think of any time when he took the gospel to royalty, even to aristocracy. But here, once he gets to Caesarea, he's going to be put in jail, but, but, the, but God brings the rulers to him. And the king's to him, and eventually God promised in verse 11 of chapter 23 that as Paul had testified about Jesus in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Paul is going to take the gospel into the very seat of power in the Roman Empire, and we don't know what happens after he gets to Rome. Luke draws the curtain shut. We know that he has appealed to Caesar, and he is going to be tried by the highest court in the land. We know that he was found uh, not guilty and was released. And uh, liberals don't believe that, by the way. So you'll run into some people who think there was just one imprisonment, but they're wrong. Uh, there were two imprisonments. Paul's released from the first imprisonment, and then not much is said. A few hints in the in the pastoral epistles. Uh, that Paul went to Spain, that Paul went to the area we now know as Yugoslavia and uh, some other areas. Tradition says he may have even made it to Britain. I don't know how much we can rely upon that, but there are certainly a lot of different traditions, some of which are more possible than others. 
but he definitely had a two or three year ministry before he was brought back to Rome as a prisoner and then executed. But God promised that he would go before kings and that begins uh, while he is in prison in Caesarea and then also that he would take uh, the gospel and be a witness to Christ in um, in Rome. Now remember the key verse all the way back in Acts 1.8. What did that verse say? I spent a lot of time talking about that at the beginning, that Acts 1.8 lays out the, the framework, the outline, as it were, for the book of Acts, because Luke is writing in order to make a point about God's sovereign work in history, that the church isn't just some accidental religious movement like some other uh, religious movements, but that this is divinely empowered, and God the Holy Spirit is working through the apostles to spread the gospel throughout the world. Jesus had told them that they should stay in Jerusalem, and in verse 8, that is the 11 disciples that are left at that point, and he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. So the primary witness that we see coming out of this is the Apostle Paul. Uh, Peter in the first part, approximately the first 11 chapters, but the rest of Acts is about Paul. Now, we study church history, we study the things we learn from traditions in the church. The other apostles spread out. They went to North Africa, they went into uh, what we now know as Turkey, that <clears throat> they, some even went up into areas north of the Black Sea, areas of modern Ukraine. Some went to uh, areas, uh, Peter went to Babylon and uh modern Iraq, taking the gospel there. Thomas took the gospel to India. Uh, we don't know other places where the apostles took, took the gospel, but the scriptures don't tell us about that. The scriptures tell us that focus on the gospel path into the heart of the Roman Empire, which was the heart of Europe at that time, and the expansion of the gospel in the first uh, six centuries of the church is really through the Roman Empire uh, in North Africa and into Europe and primarily into Europe going up through France, going to great uh, what is now Great Britain, uh, going to the Celts uh, uh, through uh, Patrick over into Ireland and then uh, through others back through uh, the island of Iona, the monastery that was there. Uh, Lindisfarne, which was another monastery set up in, uh, set up in England, uh, and the gospel established itself in, in England. And then you had others like Ulphilus who took the gospel up to, um, up to the Scandinavian countries. And you had others that took the gospel into Germany. And through all of this, the gospel spread. You ask, scratch your head and say, why didn't the Holy Spirit talk to us about what was going on in North Africa and what was going on in, in other areas of the ancient Near East and what was going on, even the gospel going east towards India and maybe as far as China? And there's a simple answer for that. And the answer to that is if you go back and you read uh, the prophecy of Noah over his three sons, he talks about the fact that Japheth is the one that is... There are three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Japheth is the one who receives the primary blessing. Shem is blessed 
by virtue of being protected by Japheth. And that's a, that works itself out eventually in how uh, the Jewish people find their greatest expression in freedom, ultimately, even though there's a lot of negative uh, and horrible anti-Semitism, they find their greatest freedom ultimately by the 19th century and 20th century under uh, Gentile uh, Japhetic descendants. But it's the gospel that goes uh, and gives the strength to the Japhetic people, and ultimately by the time you get to the 16th or 17th, 18th, 19th century, the gospel begins to go to South America, to North America, to India, uh, to Japan, to China, all by virtue of the missionary efforts that come out of Europe. And so that is an outworking of those ancient prophecies that Noah had over his three sons. The one, one is ignored, and that's Ham. Ham is just ignored. He's not mentioned. He's neither blessed nor cursed. But one of his descendants, Canaan, is cursed because he is the father of the Canaanites. And it's not because they were black. It's not for any strange reasons people come up with. It's because of the gross immorality of the Canaanites. And God gave them, uh, as we say in Texas, enough rope to hang themselves. And um, eventually they got so perverse and so corrupt that God sent his people into the land to destroy them. Not in an act of holy war like you have in Islam, which is how they spread Islam, but in an, in a surgical strike to remove this horrible cancer of the Canaanites, uh, from the, uh, body of the human race. So that gives you an overview. That's why we're, we're focusing on this because this episode at the end of Acts is going to take Paul into the heart of the Roman Empire, and it's from the Roman Empire that the gospel eventually is going to spread uh, throughout Europe in the fulfillment of those of those prophecies. But as I pointed out last time, what we learn personally from this is that God has a plan. Now, he may not have revealed his specific plan to you or to me. Uh, he may not, as he did with the Apostle Paul, but God has a plan. And, and I'm not just talking about the blueprint for the spiritual life. I'm talking about God is going to use you in tremendous ways in your life if you will let him. Going back to our, our study in Romans 12, 1 and 2 on a Thursday night. But God is going to protect us. He's going to take us through situations and circumstances, and we're going to have to deal with people and, and go places that, that we might not like if we're willing to open ourselves up to being used by God. Every time I talk about that, I always remember my first grade Sunday school teacher, whom some of you know, uh, Ursula Kemp. And Ursula Kemp was a German Jew whose parents had to escape the Holocaust, and they got out not long after Kristallnacht in, in, in uh, 1938, and the only thing they could take with them was just probably 5 or $6 a piece, and they couldn't go anywhere in the world. Every place, you, you, the U.S., Britain, every place had shut their doors except for Colombia, and they were having a revolution. Go figure. How unusual. Or Shanghai. And the Chinese opened the door to the Jews, and so they went to Shanghai, and they survived the war there where she graduated from high school, learned how to be a uh, dental technician, and when she was 18 years old, she was invited to a Christmas party. 
And it was in the British sector, which was on the other side of Shanghai from where she lived, and she tried to make excuses. She didn't want to go. This uh, other uh, uh, dental technician was trying to set her up with some guy. She didn't want to be set up with anybody. But she was. She finally yielded, and this um, this friend sent this uh, British constable to go pick her up. This British constable was about 14 years older than she, and on the way back, as he was bringing her home, he said, you're the woman I'm going to marry. She thought he was drunk, crazy, or both, and uh, but he convinced her that his intentions were honorable. He wasn't crazy or drunk. Managed to get, you know, have her um, interpret, translate his uh, a letter to her father to seek permission to come and call on her. Eventually, they became uh, engaged, and then um, the Japanese invaded, and all of the foreigners, uh, especially British, the the, uh, the Allied foreigners, were put in a prisoner of war camp. So Scotty was put in a prisoner of war camp for four years. They could only write to each other once a month, no more than ten words. It's where she learned to write. And um, after the war, they they were married. They had they didn't have two nickels to rub together. They eventually got permission to get married in the uh, British consulate, which was on British soil, went back to the Hebrides, where he was from, which is probably some of the coldest, nastiest, bleakest real estate on the planet. They didn't need any constables or dental technicians, so they became indentured servants to a uh, ranch in Red Deer, which isn't a whole lot better than the Hebrides. And... um, uh, that was horrible, just the next place to hell, just about. But by then, her mother and father, sister, married a, a, an American POW, and they were brought out. Uh, they managed to raise money in the Jewish community to get them uh, pay off their indentured debtedness, and somehow they ended up in Houston. She ended up working for a dentist who was going to this uh, church. It had a new pastor by the name of Bob Thiem, and he kept. Uh, kept begging them, pushing them, cajoling them to go to church some Sunday, and they did. They had never heard Bible teaching like that. She had never really heard Bible teaching coming from a secular Jewish home. He had. He was saved in the Scottish Presbyterian Church, and so that's where she was saved, and she hadn't been saved more than six months. And I want a lot of you to think about this because I've heard a lot of people who have spent 20, 30 years listening to good Bible teaching say, I don't know enough to teach Sunday school. So she's saved, and she's been sitting in that uh, that seat, the old uh, Quonset hut down on Lamar, and somebody turned around in front of her. Now, pay attention. Some of you haven't heard this story before. Somebody turned around in front of her and said, we're going to start a Sunday school class. What does that mean? That means they didn't have a children's Sunday school class at that point. See, that's your history, and y'all, y'all don't even know this. They didn't even have a Sunday school class. And this lady turned around and said, I need you to teach first grade. And... She said, okay, I'll do it, but I don't know anything. Well, those of you who don't know Ursula, later later on, within a few years, Ursula and Betty Theme, the wife of Pastor Theme, wrote the Sunday school curriculum that those baby boomers at Baraka Church were trained on. And she started by just saying, Lord, I don't know anything, but I'll I'll let you use me. And she still at 90 years of age, in fact, she visited the church here a year or two ago, and um, 
at 90 or 91 now, she still teaches a couple of weekly ladies' Bible classes and is, has a tremendous amount of respect throughout this city because of her uh, devotion to the Word. Her husband, uh, Scotty, went to be with the Lord back in the mid-'80s, and uh, she was my first-grade Sunday school teacher, and he was a deacon at Barack Church for many, many years. But that's just an example. Uh, it, you, it, you, all you need is to say, Lord... You know, just start me down the path. I'll do whatever you want me to do and go wherever you want me to go. I don't know where it's going to go. It's probably going to scare the heck out of me, but but um, I'm going to trust you. And that's what's important. And that's what we see in this whole episode with the Apostle Paul. He's got a promise from God, and he's willing to obey the Lord 100%. And there must have been some dark days there. Remember, this was a time when even when the Lord, that second verse we looked at in Acts uh, 23:19, Paul was that was after he had been arrested, after he had been rescued from the mobs. There were times when he feared for his life. He he's he had a sin nature just like you and I, and there were times when he wasn't real sure about things, uh, and he went through a lot more intense suffering and opposition than any of us do. And so we have to learn to trust him because we can't see around the corner. We can't see what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or next week or next year or next month. We think we do, but the Lord can use us in incredible ways if we'll just say, um, we'll go there. Okay, let's go back to Acts uh, 24 and just catch up on where we are before we go forward. Acts 24, Paul is brought, has been brought to Caesarea, and there he's um, going to defend himself before, uh, before Felix. What we learn is um, as, he, as he presents his defense in verse 11, he makes the point that he has to Felix, first of all, he was only in Jerusalem 12 days. And three of those days, he was in jail. So in nine days, that wasn't nearly enough time to generate this vast, uh, <clears throat> crazy Christian conspiracy that he was accused of. And so that really doesn't fly. That charge doesn't fly. Second, he denied being in the temple, um, inciting the crowd, uh, either in the synagogues or in Jerusalem, as he had been charged. Third, uh, he pointed out that these Jewish leaders presented no evidence whatsoever. They just had a list of charges. Anybody can say anything in a charge, but they had no evidence and no witnesses. The Ephesian Jews were mysteriously absent, the ones who had initially charged him with bringing a Gentile into the temple precincts. So he clearly states that this was a frame-up and that the uh, troublemakers hadn't even shown up to testify. The fourth thing he points out is that uh, he has indeed become a follower of the way called by the Jews, a, a Nazarene, and, but he affirms that this is the correct outgrowth of the Torah. He hasn't thrown out Old Testament teaching. He has respect for the Torah, but it's not the way to salvation. He under, Paul has a correct view of the Old Testament, and it all pointed to Jesus. So here and and then the next thing we saw was here and in the next defense, he places the focal point on ultimately he builds to a statement related to hope and that the real issue is the resurrection. In verse 15, he says, I have hope in God. 
the concept of hope here is not some sort of optimistic wish, like we say, oh, it's such wonderful weather the last three days. I, I hope it doesn't get frigid next week and snow on Christmas. We don't know if it will or not. We're just expressing a little wishful optimism. Who cares what the meteorologists say? I've heard everything from frigid below 30 highs for next week to now they're moderating that a little bit, but you never know. Hope in the Bible is confident expectation. So he puts his confidence in God uh, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And there's the implication of a future accountability at a future judgment. So, And he then, as he went on, he also uh, affirmed in verse 17 that he came. He didn't come to stir up trouble. He had been collecting financial aid uh, for the Jews in Jerusalem. And, of course, uh, Mr. Felix ears wiggled a little bit at that point, as we'll see, because uh, he, as the testimony, secular testimony that we have, is he was a man who was uh, run by his lusts, and money lust was one of them. So um, Paul affirmed that he really came to distribute financial aid, not to cause trouble. And then in the end, he went on the offense, and he challenged his accusers and said in verse 20, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in, in me while I stood before the council, knowing full well they didn't, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them, Concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. See, he just brings the point right there. He doesn't get his eye off the, the focal point, which has to be the cross, has to be the message of the gospel in one way or another. And so then we come to uh, verse 22 where we ended last time. Just a couple of the slides I showed last time for those who didn't see them. This is sort of an overall map of the area of Caesarea in the first century. Uh, Herod the Great had built a harbor here, which was the greatest harbor on the eastern end of the Mediterranean. And then you had another uh, point coming out here where they built, where he built his palace. And this was the area probably where the Apostle Paul uh, was, was held uh, in captivity. It was a house arrest. And I'll point that out in a little bit. Caesarea is located up here at the top of the map along the coast. This is Joppa, modern Tel Aviv. Uh, here is Jerusalem, and so he is north. This distance from Joppa to, uh, from Tel Aviv to Caesarea is only about, uh, 45 miles. So it's, it looks like you're used to big things, to, to maps showing great distances. If you look at a map of Texas, uh, this is a map of Israel. It's very, very small. All of, all of uh, all of Israel could be uh, placed between here and uh, and Tyler, Texas. So that's and it would all fit within East Texas, and everything else in Texas would be the Arab bad guys, completely surrounding them. So it's just a very very small place. Here's an aerial view. You can see the outline still of the harbor area here on the left. And then this was the area where the uh, palace was located. Here's a slightly different view. And I didn't point this out last time, 
But you can see that under the water, the dark area here, that's what remains of the the harbor and the breakwater that uh, Herod had constructed there uh, in the ancient world. This is a modern artist uh, recreation of that harbor. Now, let's go get into the text a little bit. I stopped at about verse uh, 22. So let's go forward. What we see here is Felix starts to procrastinate. He's stalling for time. He really doesn't want to let Paul go because he's a politician. And if he lets Paul go, he's going to anger the Jewish leadership, and that could cost him his job. So he's trying to figure out a way to balance in this precarious situation and keep the Jews happy and his Roman bosses happy. And so he decides to stall for time. And in verse 22 we read, But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he knows that the argument that the Jews are bringing, this is just a theological issue between them. It's a... Uh, uh, intramural argument among the Jews doesn't have anything to do with Roman law, but he knows that if he lets Paul go, he's in trouble, so he's got to figure out a way to keep him there. So he comes up with this this uh, fabrication of an excuse, and he says at the end of verse 22, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. Well, Lysias has already sent a letter that's covered over in 23, 26 to 30. That's his testimony. He doesn't need Claudius Lysias, the Kiliarch, to come and give personal testimony. He's got his letter. That's good enough. But he wants to, okay, we'll just wait till he comes. And to show how fallacious that argument was, they never did call for Lysias to come and give testimony. It wasn't necessary. It was just a an excuse to postpone making a decision in the case with the Apostle Paul. So he fabricates that rationale uh, just to keep Paul there. And he commanded the centurion to keep Paul, to let him have his liberty. It's, it's a nice house arrest. His friends could come and visit. They took care of him. And it was an opportunity for Felix and his wife, Drusilla. This was his third wife. She indeed was a Jewish princess, she, she and her sister Bernice were the sisters to Herod Agrippa II. Their father was Herod Agrippa I, uh, who had James, uh, the brother of John, uh, uh, killed in, in Jerusalem. And then he died under divine discipline not long, uh, not long after that. Um, this is quite a story. This whole family, we'll get into Baron, the story about Berenice a little bit later on. But um, they, they someday I keep thinking that Hollywood's going to wake up to this and have a soap opera called The Herods. They were they were unbelievable. When she was about 15 years old, she had first uh, been engaged to a prince of uh, Comagena uh, named Epiphanes, but the engagement broke off because he wouldn't become a proselyte to Judaism. And so when she was 16, she was promised off to marry Azizus, the king of Amasa, which was a little bitty uh, kingdom in Syria. And he must have really been infatuated with her because he was willing to submit as an adult to circumcision. I don't know. She must have been quite a woman. And then, not long after that, she fell in love with Felix. He must have had uh, 
quite the charm to get her to leave her husband. I tell you, if I was a husband and I, as an adult, had gone through circumcision to get a wife and somebody took her, I wouldn't be real happy. I, I, I might be homicidal, but <clears throat> anyhow, so um, this is uh, Felix's wife. She's a true Jewish princess, and and uh, they came to visit Paul, and Paul begins to talk to them, and, and notice what he says in verse 25. Now, as Paul reasoned, see, you know, in the last week I've read at least four different articles I've seen a couple of things on YouTube about how Christians are anti-rational. But see, all through the Scripture you have Paul and other apostles reasoning, presenting a logical, rational case for biblical Christianity. We're not anti-rational. We're, we're, the only thing we disagree with, with the rationalists and empiricists, is their starting point that man can be the center of all things and can come to absolute truth on his own without outside information being given to him by God. So uh, Paul reasons about three things, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. What do you think Paul said about righteousness? That none of us are righteous. None of us meet God's standard. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, and so there's a need to have uh, righteousness. Uh, Self-control, that's a point of application that really hit Felix between the eyes because Felix had none. He was a man, as we saw last time, who's controlled by his lusts. The Jewish uh, rabbi said he was controlled by his belly. That's what they meant by that idiom. He was controlled by his lusts. And the judgment to come, that made him squeamish because he did not want to be held accountable for his sin. So immediately his response was, well, Paul, go away now. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. And then the next verse, 26, states his other motive, and he says, meanwhile, and the Greek literally says, at the same time. So uh, while he's doing this, his, his real motive shows up, that he hoped that Paul would bribe him. Uh, if this guy raised so much money to help the, the starving Jews, he can raise a little money to get himself out of jail, and um, he can bribe me. So he was hoping that Paul would bribe him so he could release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him, not because he wanted to know more, but not because he was really interested in the gospel, but because he was hoping Paul would offer him a bribe. And this went on for two years, verse 27 says, and after two years, Portius Festus succeeded uh, Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Now, there are some who look at this word for bound, and it can mean that he was in chains, but it doesn't look like he's been in chains. He's been under house arrest. The word can also mean that he's just been left in, in prison. He's been left in, in an incarcerated state. He ha- hasn't been set free. So it doesn't mean that he is walking around with his hands in manacles, his feet changed together in an orange jumpsuit. He has a, a free room to move around. Uh, friends can come and visit him. He just can't leave Caesarea. So this is the situation that he's in. Now, he's succeeded by a man by the name of Portius Festus, Portius Festus, and we don't know a whole lot about Festus. 
Felix was deposed by uh, Nero. He had to resign in disfavor around A.D. 59. So we can date the year pretty much, and it's um, <clears throat> at this time, it's around 59 uh, A.D., and <clears throat> Festus is put in charge. Uh, Felix had also irritated the Jews a lot and exacerbated the problems with the Jews and Gentiles because he had uh, killed a lot of Jews, sending his soldiers into different places where uh, they were gathering and having many of them uh, murdered. And the Jews had made a formal complaint to Nero, which is why he was uh, uh, fired by Nero, basically. Uh, Festus is sent in, appointed by Nero in 59, and he dies in 62 while he's still in office. So he wasn't there very long. He was uh, about a, two and a half years as the procurator before he died in office. Josephus is the only other source other than the Bible that we have for Festus. And Josephus wrote that he ruled wisely and justly in contrast to Felix, his predecessor, and Albinus, his successor. Uh, he uh, ended some of the terrorism of the Sicari bandits. They're named after the daggers that they used. These were uh, bands of uh, Jewish zealots. Uh, and he uh, reversed a lot of the damage done by his successor, but he couldn't really do it because Festus, uh, Felix had just been so, so terrible for the, for the uh, relationships between the, the Romans and the Jews. The... And so here we see that Paul is left in bonds, and then uh, Felix comes into Festus comes into office. It says in verse one: Now, when Festus had come to the province, when Festus has come into the province, or literally in the Greek, when he set foot into the province, and actually the word here in the Greek is a late word for province. It's only used here and in chapter twenty-three, verse thirty-four. And strictly speaking, Judea wasn't a province. It was a department within the province of Syria, which was under a, a legate from Rome. Uh, so Ju- Judea had a procurator, and after he comes into town and he sets up his household in three days, and then immediately he went to Jerusalem. He's not waiting. He knows that he's got a very tense situation on his hands. So immediately he went to Jerusalem to try to find out what the problems were and to uh, settle things. So he goes to Jerusalem, we read in verse 2, then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul. That's the top issue on their priority list is that you've got to get rid of Paul. He's causing too many problems. This is part of the angelic conflict. Satan wants to get rid of Paul because Paul is too effective. And this is one of the things that that, uh, Satan does is he targets uh, the leadership of the church uh, that are effective because he wants to block the expansion of the gospel. So there's two groups here. There's the, the high priest and then the chief priest. The high priest at this time... Uh, replaced Ananias, who we saw earlier, is Ishmael ben Fiabi, uh, Ishmael ben Fiabi, and he's identified by Josephus in his work on the antiquities of the Jews. So they had the chief priests. There were 24 chief priests heading up to 24 uh, divisions of the tribe of Levi. That was the Old Testament division, and that becomes a 
pattern later on. We studied this in Revelation chapter 5 when we had the 24 elders before the throne of God. Those 24 elders represent 24 divisions among church-age believers who serve in the heavenly temple. Those 24 divisions, you don't have every Christian, every church-age believer serving every day, but you have groups that serve every day from these 24 uh, different divisions. So you have the, here you have the uh, 24 chief priests who come from the tribe of Levi, and they're all Sadducees. Remember, the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection, and they don't believe in angels. And then there's another group called the principal men or the first men of the uh, of the Jews, and that would be parallel to the uh, mentioned earlier or later in verse 15 of this chapter, the, the uh, chief priests and the elders of the Jews. So the chief men would be comparable to the elders. And these were Pharisees who were members of the Sanhedrin as well. So you have both Pharisees and Sadducees combined together uh, making this request to take care of the problem with the Apostle Paul. So they had been able to get their way with Felix. Now they want to get their way with, with Festus. And so when we read in verse 3... It says, asking a favor against him. You always have to figure out who these pronouns describe. The him is Paul. They're asking a favor against Paul that uh, he would summon him to Jerusalem, that he, that is uh, Festus, would summon him, Paul, to Jerusalem. And what were they going to do? They had their ulterior motive. They hadn't forgotten the plot. And they're going to set up an ambush along the highway from Caesarea. Once it starts climbing into the hills around Jerusalem, this was the problem that the Israeli army had during the War for Independence in 1948, was that that highway that went into Jerusalem is basically traveling up the bottom uh, of a ravine between two ridges. And you had air in 1948, you had Arab villages all along those ridges. And as the uh, Israelis were trying to resupply the isolated uh, Jews that were in the old city, the Arabs would sit up like Indians in the Old West, and they would set up ambushes all along that highway, shooting down upon the uh, Israeli um, uh, task task forces that were trying to go in there. And the Israelis didn't have much to work with. In fact, if you drive that highway today, they'll be lined in the in the grassy area between the uh, east and westbound lanes. They have these sandwich, what they call sandwich vehicles. There was a, basically it was a piece of tin on each side with a piece of plywood in between. That was their armored vehicle. That's not going to stop much. And uh, But that's all they had, so that's what they worked with. But in Paul's day, it's the same terrain and the same problem, very easy to be ambushed and attacked by a hostile force. And so the Jews have their, uh, their motive, which is to ambush uh, the Romans and to kill Paul no matter. And we saw this with the 40 who had sworn an oath that they would all die and they wouldn't eat. Uh, as long as they could kill the Apostle Paul. But Festus is uh, wise, and in verse 4 we read, uh, he answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. 
Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man. See, he's following the law, and he says the, the seat of Roman government is in Caesarea. He's been brought to us. You come down and bring your charges uh, against him, and then we'll hear the, hear the case uh, in Caesarea. But they uh, didn't quite like that, but they went along with it. They, he stayed another ten days. And in verse 6 we read, he went down to Caesarea the next day sitting on the judgment seat. That's the bema seat literally in the Greek. Uh, that's all a bema seat. It just is a term referring to a raised platform. If you go into a, we refer to the area up here as the pulpit. If you go into a synagogue, the area up front where the pulpit is, is the bema. It just comes from the Greek word or a raised platform, it was where the judgment seat was, where teaching took place, something, uh, something of that nature. Now we see the trial uh, before Festus, where Paul's brought in to explain himself to Festus, uh, covered in verses six through twelve. When he had, re- uh, and we've already covered the part where he stays there, he challenges them to come down to Jerusalem, and in verse nine we read. Uh, but Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, oh, excuse me, I skipped over to the end of verse 7. Verse 7, uh, he brings out, uh, the Jews come down to, to Caesarea, and they laid out many serious complaints. Now, Luke doesn't identify them here, but they're the same complaints that, that he st- said earlier. They're charging Paul with inciting riots. They're charging Paul with bringing a Gentile in and blaspheming the temple. Uh, they're charging Paul with causing all of these other problems. And so that just summarizes the, these uh, many complaints, uh, serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. Again, no evidence, just a lot of smoke and no fire. And Paul answered for himself, verse 8, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. And so he lays out his case. Now what's interesting here, when we look at verse 8, okay, let me get that back up there. When we look at verse 8, my computer is out of fellowship, so we have to plug the power back in so it can start walking by the Spirit again. Okay, there's there we go. Verse 8, while he answered for himself. See, earlier when Festus answers in verse 4, that's the normal word for just answering a question. But the word that's used here, again, is our word apologelmai meaning to present a logical, rational defense. So Paul answers. He presents an apologetic or or a legal defense for himself, stating and demonstrating that he has high respect for the Torah. He has no disrespect for the Torah. He just doesn't believe it's a way to salvation or sanctification. Uh, He has nothing against the temple, highest respect for the temple, nothing against Caesar, he concludes that he hasn't offended in anything whatsoever. So, Fest, But Festus, notice, he's got the same problem that Felix had. He's got to deal with this political hot potato with the Jews. So he, there are no provable charges. So he decides that maybe it would be a good thing to take Paul up to Jerusalem in order to uh, be tried there and to be judged there. 
Paul knows that if that happens, that he's going to put his life in serious danger. He won't get justice in Jerusalem. He has the promise of God that God is going to take him to to uh, Rome. That doesn't mean that it has to be a normal procedure, that he's going to be free in getting to Rome. So he sees his opportunity here, and he is going to appeal his trial to be moved from Caesarea, not to Jerusalem, but as a Roman citizen, he had the right to appeal the trial and to go to Caesar's judgment seat. This is in verse 10. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. So he keeps, and he doesn't back down. He's being respectful. He's not being inflammatory, but he is he firmly stands his ground. And so he has the right to go to Rome and to have his uh, appeal heard there uh, by Caesar. This phrase, I appeal to Caesar, is a technical legal term in Roman law. It was a right that had been granted to every Roman citizen since 509 B.C., if any Roman thought they were being mistreated, they had the right to appeal to Rome um, in order to be uh, have a fair hearing. And so this is his legal right. As a result, uh, Festus, in verse 12, confers with the council, that's the Sanhedrin, and the representatives that are there and says, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you must go. He knew that he had no other option at that particular point. So then we come to verse 13, uh, which begins saying, After some days, King Agrippa, this would be Herod Agrippa II, the son of the Herod Agrippa that we uh, saw earlier that had the Apostle James uh, killed and who uh, died under horrible divine discipline, worms coming out of his belly and everything else, horrible scene that took place there. And uh, this is his son. Herod Agrippa II became uh, the ruler of Galilee when he was 17 years old. And uh, he's uh, with his sister, Bernice. And, yeah, there was funny business going on between them. They, she would be married off to somebody else, get a divorce, and come back and live with him for a while, and then get married off in some other political ploy for two or three years, and then she'd come back and live with him. And they were the source of a lot of gossip and uh, speculation by uh, their by their uh, <clears throat> the people of their own time as well as uh, later historians. Now, this is one of the most significant sections in this because we're going to hear uh, Paul give one of the most extended um, extended explanations of his salvation starting in chapter 26. We have a lead-up in the rest of chapter 25, and then we'll get into that. We won't cover this next Tuesday night because we'll be having our Christmas Eve service, but we will be covering this on New Year's Eve. And I hope that we will at least get through chapter 26 and maybe into the shipwreck episode in chapter 27 uh, before I head off to Kiev. I had hoped we would possibly finish Acts before I went to Kiev, but we won't quite do that. And that probably allows me to set things up. Wonder what we're going to do next. We can see the end of the Acts tunnel. What's coming next? I don't know. 
I'm thinking of something though. I talk, I, I've never done a repeat. It's been, what's it been, Bryce? 15 years since we started, uh, back at Preston City. And a lot of the studies I did at Preston are just on audio. And I think that it's time for us to have a good video, uh, video study on dispensations. I've been teaching this for 10 years when I go to Kiev. I think I figured a few more things out. But I'm thinking that that would be a good series to have. We need to have that in video as well as audio. And I keep threatening to write a booklet on this. And so I think that may be the opportunity. So I'm giving that a lot of, lot of consideration right now. That when we finish Acts, we'll start a study on, uh, God's, uh, dispensations and God's covenants. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. Thank you for uh, the way you give these episodes in history that are not just historical episodes, but they're designed by you, revealed by you, recorded by you, and preserved by you so that it encourages and strengthens us, recognizing that as we are willing to present ourselves as a living sacrifice like the Apostle Paul, we're willing to serve you in whatever capacity, whatever may happen, uh, you watch over us, you guide us, you protect us. That doesn't mean we don't go through difficulties and tests and adversities and hardships, but it means that we those are used by you to conform us to the image of Christ, that we might grow and mature, and that we might give greater evidence uh, in the angelic conflict and before men of your grace and your goodness. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things we've studied this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.